Imagine, demand and build a world transformed. Hello, everyone. We are here to discuss Amelia Horgan's wonderful book, Lost in Work. Um, I'm Sarah Jaffe. I'll be your chair tonight. I am also the author of a book about work, um, which you may or may not have heard of. And um, I'm really pleased to be here with Amelia's wonderful book, Lost in Work, which is the latest release of the Outspoken series from Pluto Press, and it explores what is work, how does it harm us, and what can we do about it, and whether we should get rid of it altogether, reform it a little, what we can do in our workplaces, most importantly, to actually make it better while we're stuck with it at the moment. So before we get started, um, you can buy a copy of Lost in Work on the Pluto Press website, and it just happens to be on flash sale right now for less than a pound, just until tomorrow morning if you want the ebook right now. Or if you would like the hard copy, you can use the code TWT20 to get 20% off the book at checkout. The link will be posted in the chat. So this event is, of course, hosted by Pluto Press and The World Transformed, which is, you probably know, but just in case you weren't sure, an annual festival and year-round political education project. You can find out more about TWT's work at theworldtransformed.org. TWT's online events like this one are free for all, but they cost about 200 pounds in running costs to put on. So if you have some extra money, you could consider donating the cost of a coffee toward the running of this event and others at bit.ly slash TWT donate. So just a quick run through of what we're going to do tonight. I will be handing this over to Amelia very shortly to tell us a little bit about her book. Then we will be joined by Tam Wilson, an organizer of Better Than Zero, which is a Scotland-based trade union campaign. And then we will be hearing from Lois McCallum, who is a hospitality worker and trade union rep from Sheffield Needs a Pay Rise. After all of them have spoken, I will have a couple of questions for them, and there will be plenty of time for your questions. So please, you can go ahead and put those questions in the chat at any time. I will be keeping an eye on that during our whole conversation. So that is it from me for now, and uh, here you are, Amelia. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction, Sarah, and thank you for being here. And if you've not already read Sarah's book, you absolutely should read it, uh, Work Won't Love You Back, on the kind of lies and delusions, the pathologies of, of the passion economy, and it's really brilliant. Um, I'm gonna try and keep things brief from me because I think one thing that's super interesting about this event and this discussion is, is to find out how some of the ideas in the book are actually kind of playing out on the ground, how, how, this, how this is actually connected to real class struggle, basically. So I'm gonna just talk a little bit about the book, um, and then particularly the section on trade unions and then handover. So um, the book really answers three questions. The first of those is uh, what is work? The second is what if anything is bad about it? Um, and the third is what do we do about it? Um, the reason I wanted to write it was because um, I um, also am studying for a philosophy PhD and there's a lot of discussion um, about freedom or um, you know what it means to be a political subject what it means to be a citizen and this seems pretty detached from 
one of the main activities we do in our lives, which is work, right? So that had kind of puzzled me. So I was thinking, well, what, what is this thing and why has it been so neglected? Um, and there was a second kind of concern, which was that there's been this massive resurgence of interest in left politics, um, especially among young people. And people instinctively have, and correctly so, this kind of um, antagonism or um, general mythness towards um, towards capitalism, but it's often kind of under theorized. And the options available to people are, are quite dense or memes, right? So I wanted something which kind of was in between those two levels that, that, that people could pick up and read and, and understand what those frustrations were and how to make sense of them and what to do next, like where to take those. Um, so yeah, the, the three questions the book answers track debates within contemporary politics and contemporary political theory about what work about work, right? So where do we draw the line um, with, with this activity work? Is it just waged, is it unwaged? Um, you know, and um, what's bad about it? Is it alienation, is it domination, is it both, right? Um, and what do we do? Which is a kind of knottier issue as well because it has real practical ramifications to the left. Um, so um, in terms of uh, what work is, I, in the book, argue for, um, a relatively expansive definition, but one which keeps in view uh, what is fundamental about capitalist work, which is that um, workers are separated from the means of production. Um, and this means there's a particular power relation. Um, there are also aspects of work which are misrecognized and not treated as work. Sex work being kind of foremost amongst those. Um, yeah. The next question, kind of what is bad? Um, I've got a long list here. Um, so things that people have attributed as being bad about work, domination, um, meaninglessness. So do people are people able to find meaning in their work? Should they find meaning in their work? Um, exploitation, the extraction of value. Um, what kinds of subjects are produced at work? So if you're constantly, um, you know, having to put up with sexual harassment, if you're constantly having to be kind of capped off into your superiors, what kind of, what does that do to your sense of self? What does that do to your psyche? Um, there might also therefore be negative effects on a democratic society, character of society at large, right? If you have people who are forced into these roles. And this is something I think about a lot with um, these services, which are relatively new here in Britain, but are kind of uh, massively uh, pioneered in the States of things like Instacart. So you hire someone for the tiniest little bit of gig work to go to the shop for you, basically to, to do your shopping. Um, they're not hired by, they're not um, by the shop, they're not employed by the shop, they're kind of directly hired by you. And what does this do to society at large? It's a question which really um, perturbs me. Um, the kind of interdependencies which are, which are possible um, and how these can become quite cruel, um, interpersonal strife um, and a lack of control or autonomy at work. And, and one of the things I'm really concerned about in the book is what is lost about us, ourselves? What is lost from our kind of potential, from our option sets when we um, work, when we go to work? Uh, work is presented as this vehicle for freedom, but the reality seems quite different. Um, moving on to the to the final kind of question, what do we do? Um, so this is a debate within the contemporary left, which is often quite vexed. People take quite polarized positions. And the book is, is in part one way to address that polarization and say, okay, um, rather than saying we can do UBI or organize, um, we can do a kind of yes and thing, right? So we can say, we'll do this strategy and this strategy. This doesn't mean, um, uh, you know, 
doing whatever anyone wants, right? It has to be coordinated. And we might say there are different relative priorities to, um, to different strategies. And one of the things I want to say in the book is that, okay, a lot of this stuff um, is kind of nice and could improve workers' power, but none of it will amount to very much if we if we don't go back to trade union organizing, if we don't go back to building up working class power as a whole, right? So UBI or UBS without increasing trade union power, without increasing trade union density is kind of nice, right? But it's not gonna be particularly transformative. So um, having a kind of plurality of, of tactics and thinking about what we can do is, is the right approach, but that doesn't mean that we can just kind of willy-nilly do whatever we want. We need to think about how these connect to each other. Um, so there are kind of, um, yeah, a few different reforms possible um, without changing very much at all. Um, and that might just be kind of agitating for an increased um, kind of wage or minor differences at work. And then, um, but, but, but in doing that, um, the possibilities for greater transformation down the line can, can also become apparent because you're building that, that base, building that power. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm just looking through my notes. Um, yeah, so uh, one thing that I'm, I'm kind of interested in is this, this notion of um, how do we organize um, within the, um, against the barriers that we face now? So the situation we have is there, are, there is this widespread disaffection, especially among young people. However, um, successive attacks on unions have, have really reduced membership um, and many young people have never been in a workplace with a trade union representation at all, have never been in a union themselves. So how do we connect that frustration people feel to, um, to political action, right? Because a lot of people are like, I hate this. I'll just leave, I'll get a different job, maybe my next job will be better. But how do we say, no, what we need to do is like work together to change stuff. Um, so one possible solution, and that's been pioneered um, by, by organizations and, and, and collectives like Sheffield needs a pay rise, um, is having this like, um, and, and ACORN is thinking things like, okay, so we need to think about the worker in the round rather than just uh, someone who goes to work. We need to think about building working class power kind of um, in all aspects of people's lives. So that's renting, um, local kind of community struggles, right? Um, yeah. Um, so kind of uniting around this, this notion. Um, and, and another barrier we face is that, that, and this has of course been done on purpose, we have fragmented workforces, so people might not see each other, they might not know um, who they're gonna be on a shift with, they might not have kind of regular colleagues, right? So how do we how do we do that? And in the face of um, a future of potential working from home, how do we connect people? Um, how do we get everyone into one space and, and get people organizing? Um, it seems like the picture is one of, intense and intensifying barriers to organizing. Um, yeah. Um, and again, the, the, the strategy I kind of pushed from the book is, is, um, is not so much being like, here's the one trick, right? And the one trick either being, we just get UBI and everything is magically fixed, or we just carry on doing the same things. It's to think about how can we take people's frustrations politicize them and join them up to struggles that are actually existing and how do we get those struggles to come to those people so um i'm gonna leave it at that from me and, and we're gonna hear about how people are actually doing that on the ground basically how people are getting from that frustration someone is pissed off at work 
someone identifies the problem as vaguely their boss or vaguely their manager um, and how we get from that frustration to to increasing working class power right um great yeah that's enough from me for now i think <laughs> Hi, yes, thank you, Amelia. Um, so we're gonna hand this over for Tam. And yeah, remember if you have any questions, you can post them anytime in the chat. Thanks so much. So yeah, hi, my, my name's Tam and I'm a, an organizer for the STUC's Better Than Zero campaign. Um, thanks so much for inviting me to speak here today. Um, it's genuinely a privilege to speak at the launch of such a fantastic book that speaks so well to so many of the issues that we are experiencing on the ground. Um, I think a lot of the good discussion will come during the questions, but I'm just going to briefly explain the approach of Better Than Zero and then talk about some of the different actions and activity that have taken place over the course of the last year or so. So Better Than Zero is a Scotland-based trade union campaign set up by precarious workers in 2015 with the support of the Scottish Trade Union Congress, um, set up in an effort to ad address the decreasing youth membership across unions and seize the space of organising potential centred around precarious and casualised work and pose back to the established unions the reality of precarious work and how they need to adapt to engage precarious workers and be equipped to support the struggles in their workplaces. And so we aim to support precarious workers with the tools, tactics and confidence to challenge casualised and exploitative work practices in Scotland. And the campaign was established with the understanding that large swathes of young people and young workers have absolutely no idea what trade unions are, um, so we seek to engage workers, not by lecturing them on the validity of unions, but instead speaking to workers where they are and support embedding the understanding of their collective strength. Um, so we speak to workers about joining their union um, as a part in the process of establishing a collective identity within a workplace, but not as an opening gambit or as an end goal. Um, so over the years, I would argue that Better Than Zero has played a vital role both in changing the public's perception of precarious work in Scotland and jolting unions into action to adapt. And I think the Unite Hospitality campaign is a fantastic and thriving example of that. Um, so obviously over the course of the last year and a half, we've had to somewhat adapt our approach and move much of our activity online, but the principles remain the same. Supporting workers and utilizing their own knowledge and understanding, and then supporting them in different creative ways to uh, achieve further engagement, either internally or externally. Um, one issue that we are constantly talking about, which I think was discussed very well in the book, was the issue of power in relation to low hour, low security work. So we of course have a focus on workers who are on zero hour contracts, hence the name. But something that we often have to reiterate when discussing zero hour work is that issues aren't um, the issue isn't exclusively the lack of hours that workers are getting, but how this further emboldens the power of the boss and leaves workers reluctant to challenge issues through threat of loss of hours and of future work. So we have to be careful not to scare workers with grandstanding because we understand that this is a very real threat. And one important thing to note is that often workers will get in touch with us with an issue and ask, is this legal? Now, more often than not, the answer is yes, but that doesn't mean um, that what's happening can't be challenged. And I think this just speaks to how poor the rights at work are in precarious industries. Um, the law is a tool in our arsenal, of course, but is rarely, if ever, the center of our efforts and it is not the basis for building this collective strength. Um, so we encourage workers to get in touch with us. We then try and get as many together into different messenger groups uh, and then have collective meetings, either online or offline. And then we work to collectivize their concerns and de-individualizing de their problems and making them um, or trying to get them to see that in a wider context. Um, 
we discuss a variety of different techniques, whether that be um, collective letter writing, petitions, online workplace sabotage, which I can maybe discuss in a bit more detail later, um, or just media engagement. Uh, we then, through the workers, and depending on what approach they choose to take, either pose this back um, directly to management or through different media channels as a way of leverage. Um, another fundamental part of our approach is providing training opportunities. So I don't really have time to discuss this in depth here, but we hold a variety of different training on workplace organizing, some on specific issues and some more broadly on organizing. Um, with a few of our sessions borrowing some of the, uh, Jane McAlevey's techniques um, and adapting them into a precarious work context. Um, also off the back of what Amelia said earlier in terms of like ACORN's approach and looking at a whole worker rather than just the, the worker in the workplace. So in the past few months, we've been engaging in a campaign that we've called the Workers' Reunion Campaign. Um, the campaign has sought to direct the energies of people who have engaged with the Better Than Zero campaign over the course of the last year um, toward going out and speaking to other workers. Um, our initial launch led to two days of action in May with a focus on hospitality and retail, but we have many more events planned over the coming weeks and months, including some specific days of action in call centres and cinemas. Um, the aim, again, is strengthening workers' collective power in these different precarious industries, obviously coinciding with the large-scale reopening of some of these businesses. Um, so we put a mass call out for people to get involved. We then held a number of drop-in Zoom training sessions to go through the basics of what it was that we were looking to achieve, running through potential conversations that people might have, um, what to do with the information that they gained from workers, um, we then pulled all the people from the sessions together into messenger groups and began to create a bit of a group dynamic uh, in each of these areas. Uh, since, the uh, since the launch, we now have an online version of this training that people can engage in in their own time. So, so far we've had days of action in Dundee, Edinburgh and Glasgow with growing groups of activists in each of these areas. And we also have the bones of groups in Aberdeen and Fife uh, ready to go out and do the same. I think Aberdeen are out for the first time next week. Um, yeah. So these actions are multi-purpose. It's in showing the um, workers the strength of support that is available to them, highlighting to bosses that workers aren't going to take poor conditions lying down, and to build up the confidence of some of our newly engaged workers and activists. Um, this has led us to have established a robust network of young workers who are ready to engage and shape the actions of Better Than Zero going forward, and to influence the actions of the broader trade union, broader trade union movement in Scotland. Um, so, so far we've had over 100 activists out on the ground across three cities, uh, handed out thousands of leaflets and had hundreds of conversations with workers. Um, not every single one of them is necessarily going to turn into action down the line, but it pins the idea on people's minds and we've already had people who appeared reluctant at first get back, um, get back in touch with us after our initial conversations. Um, so the workers' union actions have allowed us to build up a bit of a map of the realities for workers in each of these areas. Um, that we've been to so far. And these conversations are less revolved around signing people up and more about understanding their situation and engaging a new cohort of young workers who may have previously been missed. So this is of course ongoing and it's also generating a large amount of casework and other activity as a result of these actions. Um, so one other thing that I want to talk about is a call centre collective. So one issue that I thought was covered really well in the book was the issue of increased surveillance, um, especially in the context of working call centres. So at the end of last summer, alongside the STUC and the CWU, we launched a cross-union campaign called Call Centre Collective, which is essentially using the same approach as Better Than Zero campaign, but in a specific call centre context. 
Um, so whilst launching during lockdown has meant that we're still kind of establishing the full context of the campaign, we have already begun organising efforts uh, focused on the more precarious contact centres. Um, so surveillance is one of the more prevalent issues that workers get in touch with us about, probably only second to their immediate health and safety concerns um, during the pandemic. And one particular workplace where what is discussed in the book um, is most prevalent is within teleperformance. So a few months back, we had a couple of workers get in touch with us to let us know that teleperformance had issued a notice that all employees would be sent out webcams that would be mandatory during work hours. Workers were given no clear notice of how this policy would be enforced, no signal as to who would have access to the webcam feed and no assurances of any protections that they would have. In fact, workers were receiving quite contradictory information from different sources about what was actually going on. Um, their justification for this was that they wanted to ensure the workforce were abiding by the clean desk policy as a matter of health and safety concerns um, for, the, for the workforce, which is of course nonsense. Um, workers at Teleperformance already have every aspect of their work life monitored from how long it took them to answer a call to any and every interaction that they had with their fellow colleagues which of course makes it much more difficult to organize, especially considering a lot of these workers have only worked from home. Um, now, last time I checked, Teleperformance were the largest call center employer in the world. And while these webcam plans were specific to the UK, they had tried similar things in the past in other European countries. So for many who were working at Teleperformance, the introduction of mandatory webcams was a final straw. So we put a call out for Teleperformance uh, to two teleperformance workers and we were inundated with responses. Um, we then pulled together these workers into groups and um, with a very careful approach to make sure that there were no management moles in these groups um, and began to discuss how we would put pressure on management to change this policy. We started setting up uh, teleperformance workers with different media outlets to voice their concerns, uh, grabbing a couple of front pages in the record in the process. And we had a number of different training sessions where we discussed potential tactics and um, to both bring in more workers and to cause disruption within teleperformance. So after grabbing quite a lot of attention around the issue, teleperformance caved and scrapped their policy, which was of course a huge victory for the workers involved. But I know this might sound counterproductive, but you could potentially make the argument that the, vi the victory was won too quickly, just as we were beginning to build up a bit of momentum. The victory, of course, came from workers coming together to, and making their voice heard, but you could argue that it came just at the point where we could have tipped the engagement into a longer, more robust organizing drive and created lasting change within teleperformance. And you could potentially argue that this was very deliberate on their part. So while it slowed momentum, we still have these collections of workers looking to take things forward uh, and we are still building. The issue, is that, um, the issue that we are currently discussing with the teleperformance workers is the fact that teleperformance have now got rid of their notice of incoming calls for workers. So that means that workers now have to have their headset on at all times as a call can begin at any moment with no warning. Um, this approach would obviously be impossible in a workplace, but it's even less possible um, when working from home. So expect to see more things uh, on that going forward. Um, so I've, I've taken up too much time already. So just to close off, um, I would say we don't, uh, I would say we don't need to lecture workers on the ills of their working conditions because they know this better than anyone. The challenge is in supporting workers to understand their strength, their strength comes collectively and to raise the expectations of what they can expect from work. The notion of sign up for the union and we will protect you doesn't empower workers. It is often an overpromise that can leave workers with a sour taste in their mouth around unions. Um, what is working is speaking to workers. Um, and I think the challenge is, of course, not to just get people in the union, to be, but to be leaders in their union 
both locally and nationally, shaping the branch activity and the strategies of the union nationally. Um, so yeah, thank you very much for listening and I'm really looking forward to the rest of the discussion. Cheers. Thank you. I definitely want to come back to the issue of surveillance on the job because that is so relevant for so many of us as we move into post-COVID life. Um, so we're going to hand it over to Lois for about 10 minutes to talk about Sheffield needs a pay rise. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Lois. Very excited to be here and also a little bit nervous, so bear with me. <laughs> um, I've only really recently been introduced into the world of trade unions, like in the last year and a half, but it's been a proper whirlwind. Um, at the moment, I've got three zero-hours contracts. I work in kitchens and bars at my local students' union and also at a cinema and a cafe. Um, I'm here because I got involved in a campaign called Sheffield Needs a Pay Rise, uh, also known as SNAP. Um, and from that, I've had some good success with organising my colleagues uh, in my workplaces. So tonight, I'm going to talk a little bit about what Sheffield Needs Pay Rise is, like what it aims to do, um, and how we've had to adapt during the pandemic. Um, essentially, Sheffield Needs Pay Rise, quite similar to TAMS, um, is a movement of low-wage workers coming together across the city to demand more, whether it's better pay, more respect, security, or just a feeling of empowerment at work. We aim to get workers engaged with the trade union and empower them to take action in their own workplaces. Um, we tend to focus on big corporations because at the end of the day, like these are the companies that set the poor standards and working practices for the rest of the industry. Like if, if you can organize workers in McDonald's and Weatherspoons, you know, it really sets a precedent for other employers. Um, we also focus on hospitality because it's one of the fastest growing sectors in the world. Um, there's a lot of things that SNAPS does but I thought it would be best if I just focus on the area that I'm most involved in, which is canvassing. So canvassing is basically our supporters and workers using a sort of survey format to have face-to-face -face organizing conversations with low-wage workers in their workplace. Um, we do canvassing for a number of reasons. Um, we want to grow awareness of the campaign, but mostly we want to find out the issues that workers are facing and map this across the city. And ultimately, we want to build trust with those workers and organize um, the next generation of exploited low wage workers. So we start by identifying the issues that a worker has. Um, we always start by asking if you could change one thing about work, uh, what would it be? It's a really simple question, but it's just really useful. Um, I think a trap that can be really easy to fall into is that you think you know the worker's issue better than the worker does themselves. Um, so, for example, in hospitality, like there's a lot of precarious work, there's people on zero hours contracts, um, people who can't save because they're on minimum wage. Um, you've got people who don't have sick pay. And of course, like these are massive, massive issues that need addressing. But often when you talk to a worker, they're really frustrated because um, they get their rota really late in the week or the manager doesn't treat them with respect or they feel unsafe getting home safe at night. Um, and if you're encouraging workers to take action at work, it needs to be for an issue that they really care about. So it can sometimes surprise you what that issue ends up being. Um, so once you find out the issue we're facing, the next step is to agitate the worker. You basically need to give them permission to be angry about that issue um, and who they can be angry at. So, you know, why hasn't this changed already? Can't the company afford to pay you more? Who makes the decisions to change this? Don't you think you should be treated better? And then it's, you know, uh, well, what if you alone ask for better pay? versus what if you and all your colleagues came together and asked, like, would that make a difference? Um, 
It basically all builds towards the worker feeling optimistic and invested in taking action at work. So once we've done this survey, we ask for contact details to chase up later, and we can have a more like in-depth conversation with them. The aim being to turn these workers into canvassers and activists themselves, um, to recruit their colleagues into a union, to turn up to strikes, and to start to organize in their own workplace. We basically want to identify worker leaders and stores where we think like workers could take action. Um, as well, if you're a worker and you want to take action, but you might be a bit hesitant to do it in your workplace, then going on a canvassing session, um, talking to people outside of your workplace, it's a really great way you can practice organizing conversations without the kind of stress of knowing that like this is where you work and my manager is over there. It's like a good way to build confidence. Um, so I want to prove to you that it's working for us in Sheffield. So I thought I'd tell you about a few of our recent wins. So um, we had nearly 100 community members coming out to support a bunch of Papa John's workers who were taking action to win back about 10K worth in stolen wages. We were all stood outside the store. Um, the workers gave speeches. It was really empowering. They then went into their workplace with a letter saying, like, here's what we're owed and here's what our demands are. And the workers read the letter to their employer. And within 30 minutes, the employer had said, yep, we agree. We'll, we'll pay back the wages in full. So it was like a really good moment for us. Um, we've also got a big pub chain, um, Michelin Butlers. I think they're all around the country, but we've got a couple of venues in Sheffield. Um, the workers across three of the pubs coordinated a sort of march on the boss. So that's basically the workers come together with a list of demands presented to the boss. Um, and through doing that, it resulted in a national halt on redundancies, extra staffing and training in these three stores and the removal of an abusive manager. And finally, um, Weatherspoons, I feel like that's a hot topic throughout the pandemic. Um, we helped to mobilize Sheffield workers alongside 800 other pub workers nationwide to organize an email bomb, which resulted in access to furlough for over 40,000 workers. So we know that like, you know, celebrating union wins, however big or small, just gives confidence to workers so you can move on to like bigger and better, stronger fights. So for example, in our local KFC, workers came together because they really wanted a, a working lock on their toilet door. They felt unsafe because the lock wasn't working and customers could use that toilet. It sounds like a really small thing, but it was a really important to them like to feel safe at work. So in winning this, it like showed workers like how much power they have when they join together over a common issue. Uh, one thing I really love about being part of SNAP is that it takes such an active approach to being in trade union. I think people have already mentioned this on the call today. It's basically moving away from treating your trade union as a service instead just going like, oh no, the, I am the union, you are the union. Uh, it's not this outside insurance, it's just colleagues coming together to improve your conditions and feel powerful at work. And what's good about Sheffield News Pay Rise as well is it's not just you and your colleagues in one workplace, it's like a whole movement across the city. Um, I think Amelia mentioned earlier saying like people are often um, put off by joining like activism at work because they're constantly moving workplaces like everyone you talk to always says oh no I'm leaving this bar job next week or I'm leaving this kitchen job next week I've been saying it for I don't know three four years and I'm still doing it all uh, everyone's confident that they're on their way out um, so it makes sense to do kind of a city-wide approach rather than individual workplaces because people aren't that committed to that workplace, they don't feel a sense of belonging there, but they do feel a sense of belonging to their city. Um, and if a worker does plan to leave, we always just say like, well, why don't you go out with a bang? Like if you're leaving, you might as well try and like stir something up in your workplace. Uh, it takes energy and commitment to get the changes at work, 
but it does work and it has been working for all of these people in Sheffield. Um, I think one of the biggest barriers to getting people engaged in unionizing is having low expectations, like low expectations of what they're worth uh, and the power that they hold. Workers are often led to believe um, by their employer and the work culture that they're getting as much as they deserve and to ask for anything more would just be like greedy or ridiculous. So I think raising people's expectations and supporting workers to make demands of their employers is one of the best things that we could be doing with our time. Um, I thought just quickly at the end, um, I would talk about organizing in lockdown because obviously the pandemic was <laughs> made things a little bit harder. Um, so we had to change our way of working quite a lot. There's, there's a lot of power in having face-to-face -face conversations. Um, so when you try to have the same impact, when you can't just kind of pop into a workplace, it's really difficult. So in the week leading up to lockdown last month, uh, not month, I wish it was last month, uh, last May, um, we did daily canvassing, uh, trying to basically get as many workers' details as possible so that we could stay in touch with them over lockdown. Um, similar to what Tam was saying, we've got workers forming like uh, Democrat committees and group chats via Zoom to try and keep everyone engaged. Um, we use social media, like a lot of others. Um, we organize Zoom rallies centering on workers like sharing their experiences. So things such as stri uh, Strike for Black Lives and also Fast Food Day of Action Against Sexual Harassment. Um, we had to replace our canvassing session with leaflet drops but we would um, point workers to kind of TUC workplace advice or give them email templates that they could send to their bosses, for example, to like ask that they could be put on furlough or ask for a halt on redundancies. Um, a lot of people were on furlough and quite checked out of work, but um, I think it's been mentioned earlier today, like people don't stop being a worker just when they finish their shift for the day. There's a massive overlap between what SNAP's doing and organizations like ACORN, which is a community union. Um, if you're in low paid work, you're likely to be a renter, you're likely to be using public transport. So people in hospitality are moving around a lot. So it's looking at the whole culture of being a worker in hospitality and not just on one employer. Uh, we also ran some online sessions to try and train people to have these organizing conversations. So that like we've got this big group of workers who are prepared and excited to go and build a movement when we're allowed back out again. Um, getting involved with Chefney's Pay Rise has just really motivated me to organise in my own workplace. Um, my experience with canvassing and talking to workers meant that I was able to recruit a dozen of my cinema colleagues into BEC2, which is like the theatre union. Um, and we've recently had a massive success at Sheffield Students Union. Uh, where we've just won full sick pay for all staff. So I'm very excited about that. Um, and yeah, I think I'm pretty much finished. I just want to say I'm excited to see how Snap can grow now that we can go back to seeing workers face to face. And thank you so much for having me. And I'm a very slow reader, but what I have read of the book, I have loved. So I'm very excited to finish it off. Um, thank you very much. Hello. Um, thank you, Lois, Tam. Um, this is great because I'm, a, as you can hear from my accent, I'm an American and I'm a labor journalist, mostly in the state. So I'm like learning about organizing campaigns here is really exciting for me. Um, so I wanted to start off with a question for the three of you and just to remind everyone that you can put your questions in the comments um, and I will ask them of our wonderful panel here. Um, but so something that came up in 
things that all three of you said. We're sort of organizing people, not just in the workplace. And to build on that, we've had a real growth in interest in left-wing politics and sort of class politics in recent years, but a lot of that still is very disconnected from people's actual working experiences. So people might have joined the Labour Party, they might be supporting members of an organization like TWT or members of Momentum or something like that, but don't necessarily take action in their workplace. And so obviously books like this one are helpful for people connecting the sort of vague sense that capitalism is, is rotting our lives and connecting it hopefully to people's real questions and, and challenges in the workplace. But how do we think about moving people from a sort of vague sense that everything is horrifying to a sense that there's something that they can do about it right now by being active in their workplace? I don't know if Amelia wants to say anything to that and then. Uh... Um, yeah, I think that's, it's, it's such a fascinating question. Um, we've had this kind of uneven resurgence in a way um, because there have been such concerted attacks on, on trade unions and, and on the sectors in which trade union density was historically high, right? So um, we had a kind of moment where uh, social movements and I'm thinking about British history here and the kind of um, the left that kind of was in or then joined the Labour Party kind of leapt over the actual kind of possibilities of that moment. Um, so we had a kind of very uneven situation and consciousness was higher often than actual struggle. Um, I mean, I think I think it's a really interesting one because there's a kind of parallel, and I talk about this in the book, between a kind of feminist coming to consciousness. Uh, and, and, and the feminist social theorist, um, Sarah Ahmed, has this idea of the snap, right? So you come up against some kind of restriction relating to gender or some kind of um, particular power relation, and you have this moment where things become visible to you. And, and I, I think it's really interesting to contrast that with the possibilities of how that happens in the workplace. Um, which is, um, you know, you 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 do also come come up against power relations, um, but and I think this is this is what both Tam and Lewis pointed pointed to so so well was that people's ex, people's expectations, what they believe is possible for them and those around them, have been so lowered, so ideologically lowered, that that kind of snap moment um, works in a very different way, right? So you have this kind of sense of well, maybe it's me. Maybe it's made the problems with me, right? Maybe I need to go somewhere else. Maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe I should work harder. And this, of course, happens against a backdrop of um, this deeply ideological um, kind of legitimation story we tell ourselves about the society in which we live, which says, if you work hard, you'll, you'll succeed. Now, what does that mean for the people who haven't succeeded? They just haven't worked hard enough, right? Um, <laughs> So I think there's there's an interesting kind of question about well, okay what, what what comes in there, and the state of um, the practical state on the ground of, of lots of unions is like you get a leaflet when you start your workplace and it's like oh okay you can join the union if you want or you see a beam if you're a young person, which is like join the union and you join the union and you always should but like there's not that connection between your feeling, your anger and what you can do and your expectations have been artificially lowered. So yeah, that, that's what I'd say on that. Um, we're fighting um, an ideological uh, barrier there and we're fighting a kind of material barrier vis-a-vis -vis the, the destruction of trade union power, I guess.
anyone, anyone. I don't. Yeah, well, go ahead. Well, I can't. Um, so, I mean, the, the question of like political activity in relation to work activity, like, so like joining the Labour Party is not as clear cut a uh, process up in Scotland because there's a, a bit more variables in, in play in terms of where people direct their political attention. But um, Better Than Zero was born out of um, like uh, the independence referendum in 2014. So the, like the whole purpose of, or not the whole purpose, but the purpose of like creating Better Than Zero was to try and harness that young energy um, that was involved with the Scottish independence campaign, whether you were yes or no, and direct it towards workplace uh, issues, which is I think why it blew up so quickly because people had spent a year or two years talking about their frustrations with society. Some of them would have, would have been solved by Scottish independence, other than wouldn't have been. And we were able to sort of seize that opportunity to show how they could um, take action, whether that be in support of other workers in struggle or in, in their own workplaces themselves. And, and that's why I think like the Better Than Zero is so embedded into people's minds um, in, in Scotland. Um, the amount of mums we get in touch with us telling us like, oh, I've heard Better Than Zero years ago. My son is doing this, that and the other, which isn't necessarily the means of, of building um, that strength in a workplace, but it kind of shows how embedded um, our actions have been in, in sort of the Scottish understanding of of, of activity. Um, so yeah, I think that's why we blew up so quickly at the start. And this is before I worked, before I before I worked or was that engaged with the the campaign. Um, but over the course of the last few years, people who were involved in Better Than Zero who had no understanding of trade unions are now leaders within the trade union movement in Scotland. Whether that be working for unions or in unionised workplaces. Um, now, obviously, the purpose of Better Than Zero is not to create uh, trade union bureaucrats, but it does show that our approach has has filtered through into in, into people's approach towards trade union organising with this organising approach rather than just that servicing model. And I think then that filters across to some of the other political actions that take place. So we work quite closely with Live and Rent, which is the tenants union, not exactly the same as Acorn, but essentially a Scottish equivalent. And we work quite closely at the start of the pandemic, like precarious work, precarious housing, and like trying to um, take in the concerns of, of people uh, at that time and um, either post stuff to Scottish government or um, coordinate people for actions in Glasgow or, or what have you as well. And then um, the, the stopping of the, the deportation that happened in Kenmuir Street a couple of months back, um, so it's just around the corner from where I live, and like, although the initial call out was put out from No Evictions, which is a great campaign, which helped have people there ready for the first instance, it was full of people who were being involved in Better Than Zero, people who were there with their union flags. So I think we've, I'm not saying that everything is perfect here in Scotland. I'm not trying to paint that as either, but I think we have done pretty well, um, almost accidentally at some points, uh, of crossing over union activity with general political engagement and I suppose it helps a little bit that um, Scotland is a bit smaller so there's less campaigns to sort of dilute people's attention and it's a lot easier to kind of work together on some of these things. That doesn't mean that we don't have issues but um, yeah I think we, we started from a good basis and I think that's what helped us grow so quickly. Excellent. Lois do you want to jump in here? I won't add too much because um, I just agree mostly with what everyone else has said but um, I think just like the emphasis on um, starting small is, is completely fine. Like 
um, when you talk to workers, it can be really overwhelming if you're just like, oh, trade unions, and they, they might know nothing about trade unions, or they might only think of trade unions as being a thing in the past, or, oh, yeah, my granddad was in one, or, or you know, a teacher I know is in one, or nurses are in one. Um, so, like, starting small and just saying, like, basically saying, well, what is a trade union? It's just a group of us saying, we hate this thing about work, and we're going to try and change it. I think that's a good way to do it. Um, yeah, like start starting small with one issue that you have in your workplace and then building on that, as Tam says, and then suddenly you have these activists that you, you didn't even think that that's where you were going to be. And then suddenly, you, yeah, you just get there. That's all I've got to add. Excellent. So we have an audience question that is um, looking for tips. If you already have a trade union and reps at your workplace and it's inactive. And I wanted to loop that into something that that all three of you again referred to, which is this idea that you have to understand you are the union, not that the union is this external thing that provides a service. And it's interesting to me moving again from the American to the UK context, because in, in the US, you can't just join the union. You have to organize your workplace to actually be recognized as a member of the union and to get benefits from the union. Um, so what I, I find sort of strange sometimes here is there will be these sort of periodic like pushes on social media where it's like, join a union. And that just seems to be like akin to like donating $5 a month to T five pounds a month to TWT, which incidentally I do and so should all of you. Um, <laughs> you like that plug, right? Um, but like, that's great. But I also, you know, it, it's not a perfect equivalent because actually you have to do more to be part of your union than just pay dues and hope that somebody will turn up and solve your problems for you. And so, um, yeah, I, I want to offer tips to our questionnaire here from all of you from your organizing experience, but also just to, to talk about this as maybe a generation gap that maybe we can change um, with younger workers and campaigns like the ones that, that, that both of you are working on. Um, so let's go in reverse order this time and let Lois talk first. Oh, that's terrifying. I hate going, I hate going first. Um, what would I say? This is it's a very good question. It can be tough because you think, oh, cool, I've joined a union. Now what? And then it can feel a bit stunting, like, what do I do now? Um, trying to think from my own experiences of getting workers involved. Um, I think it's just not, not being afraid to, like, call the question and say to someone, like, um, just go full in, like, join the trade union. Um, when I was organizing a couple of my colleagues at cinema I work at, um, maybe this isn't a good, maybe this isn't good advice, but this is what I did anyway, so I'll share it. But um, I would start with friends and say, do you know what I think you should do? I'd be like, join join the trade union. You know, it's not too expensive. Um, give it a month or two. And if we can get enough of us in that we can get something sorted, um, then great, we've sorted something. And if we haven't, I promise I'll buy you a pint at the pub. I just did it that way, maybe a little bit informal, but it really works for hospitality workers. We'll do anything for a pint. So just basically saying, like, take a punt. Like, maybe this could be a really good way for our workplace to get some more power at work. Do it, and if it doesn't work, I'll get you a pint. And then then it worked, and it's going quite well. That, that would be my advice. Maybe, maybe alcohol-based advice was not good, but that's what I have for you. Um, so in terms of like the, the question straight up in terms of uh, 
workers that already have union members in the workplace but are inactive. Not going to lie, we, we don't actually deal with much of that because most of the people that get in touch are from ununionized workplaces. Um, in some contexts, I would suggest speaking to regional organizers rather than um, organizers in your workplace to see if you can get the ball rolling. Because obviously, I mean, your local branch is supposed to be a democratic body. So, I mean, you should have some input on in, in regards to what's happening. Um, what I kind of said earlier was that like, so yeah, if anybody asks me to, if they, if they should join the union, I'll say yes. But like, we don't go in with that approach in the first instance, because if people have uh, not that much knowledge about what the purpose of trade unions are, then you're asking them to sign up for something. I mean, some of them can be a little bit ex like expensive if you're on precarious or zero hour contracts. Um, what are we what are we promising them in that instance? You're going to spend more of your money, but actually you're just like signing up to like the equivalent of an NUS card, like a waste of time. So, um, so yeah, we we really focus on when people get getting or getting people in touch with us to explain their issues and then trying to collectivize that issue and then talking about the union because if we use it as a first step, then it just sort of um, ru like ruins any momentum that you could potentially build. Um, and also some unions have a, have a policy that or have policies that you have to have been a member for a certain number of months before you can get any support. Now, I understand why that makes sense. You shouldn't be getting the benefits of the union if you don't want to engage with it. But that's not that doesn't necessarily work in precarious work and unorganized workplaces. So if we're telling them oh, join the union and then the union tells them, oh, yeah, sorry, we can't help you because this incident happened um, prior to you being a member. Then what are they going to think about unions? Um, so I think that's I think that's why we, we we don't lay on heavy about joining the union. We we've already looked to establish that collective identity before we then open that conversation. Um, as I say, we don't shy away from the fact of a union campaign or, or or try and disguise it or anything like that. It's just not our initial focus. Um, is the is the point that I would make. Um, how this works in, in, in already organised workplaces, I suppose, is a bit more complicated. Though. I don't have that much to add. I think the points so far have been um, super helpful. I think um, Sarah mentioned the, the different kind of national context. I think that that's a super interesting point. There's been one weird kind of paradoxical effect of some of the re restrictions um, and um, awful unfair rules that have been put on trade unions in this country, which have left left us with some of the most regressive and restrictive rules on trade union activities in in europe um but one thing is and this is kind of paradoxical but points to the issue that, that sarah was talking about was that because there are higher thresholds for action ballots to do action you really have to talk to all, all the members um you have to really go out and really do it do that kind of stuff that the activities that um that tom and lois are talking about like canvassing having a stall chatting to members um so there's been that kind of paradoxical effect doesn't really mean that much uh, in the wider scheme of things, but that's kind of interesting. Um, it does point to the fact that that doing more um, unions, branches, having that presence, um, you know, being active within those workplaces, being visible, and being visible in a way which is um, which raises expectations rather than just talking about, you know, I guess there's this idea that what people want is a good deal from their union, um, but actually, um, especially, especially in the kind of sectors we've seen what what seems important is like saying okay here's a problem we can collectively fight for a solution rather than you know the union is like i don't know it's like a raincoat right like you, you have it just in case it's raining or an umbrella um 
saying, you know, we're all the co. I don't know. I don't know what would work in that analogy. Um, I guess you can you can also run for positions in your branch, right? Um, to, to answer that question, I think there's there's also there's always a, a risk, especially with with young people or um, kind of minoritized groups, right, of, of being in some way kind of tokenized. Um, and I think that that's a tough one. But again, it comes back to I think what what Tom was saying was so was so spot on there, which is that it's not just like join the union and sign up. It's like before that, you need to have a sense of collective power, of collective identity within your workplace and beyond it as a worker, right? Um, so I think. I think it comes to that, it comes to consciousness, which has to kind of come a bit before, in a way, that join the union thing. Um, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Whenever you, whenever my, the advice always is when you, when you join the workplace, find out if there's a union, join, find out what the union is, join it. But, but we need to do that kind of next step, which is like, okay, how do we radicalize? How do we get active within those unions? How do we push people to be doing a bit more? Um, there are places, um, places where I've worked, especially in bits of the public sector where you still have that union presence, but people aren't necessarily that active or people have been on the committee for years and years and years and, and have kind of lost sense of, of that struggle. How do you kind of get people to be a bit more active? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things that, just to add my own little uh, advice here, one of the things that we've seen be incredibly powerful in the States in some of these contexts, I'm sure some of our audience have heard of the Chicago Teachers Union, maybe the Los Angeles teachers, maybe the red state strikes from a couple of years ago. And one of the things that really kicked off this wave of teacher organizing that maybe hasn't been talked about quite as much in recent years since the red state wave sort of made it all look magical and spontaneous is it really what happened starting in places like Chicago and Los Angeles, and some of this I've written about in actually both of my books, um, is that a group of rank and file teachers in these cases came together, they started reading groups, and they essentially took over their union. And that's what brought them to the point of having an actual militant union that then took strike action. And to Amelia's point about the high standards for balloting for a strike, say, um, this is also very true in Chicago. Sorry, guys, there's like, I don't know what's going on outside my window right now, but that was a lot. They're gone now. Um, so because of those high standards, the, the Chicago teachers had just had a law passed that actually raised their, um, they had to get something like 80% of all members, not even just voting members, to vote for a strike. And they got up to 90-something percent when they actually did it because of this kind of organizing. So that is easier said than done, very much so. Um, but I think it's worth mentioning. Um, so I wanted to talk about, because the subtitle of Amelia's book, of course, is Escaping Capitalism, and it is a sort of far-reaching book that really questions whether work is good for us at all. And um, if you're familiar with me, you know my answer to that question is no. But I think one of the challenges right now for the labor movement and for people who are not involved in it at this moment both is this identity as a worker, is itself kind of complicated, right? Do we want to identify as workers anymore? Um, there was a, a phase of the labor struggle that sort of valorized a certain kind of work and a certain kind of worker who was usually a white guy. Um, no offense to our white guys in the room. But so I wonder if 
talking about these campaigns where you're thinking about people's identity within the city, um, what is happening now with the way people think of themselves around work? Do people want to find fulfillment through work anymore? Would they rather just get it over with and get onto something else? And how does worker organizing connect us to thinking in bigger ways about how much of our lives we want to spend working anyway? I'm going back to Amelia first. That is a great set of questions. I've I've written down <laughs> I've written down some notes, um, so I'm going to try and uh, give an answer. Um, I think one thing that is kind of difficult with this question is the the status of the claim of what it is to be a worker within the history of the left and the history of left thinking. You have this sense of basically who gets to be like the revolutionary subject. And is this tied to like an empirical reality on the ground or is this kind of, does this pass into kind of mythology? Um, because when Marx is writing, right? Like it makes sense to be like, aha, look at this massive change, this empirically visible change in how society is organized, in the way work is done, um, in this mass dispossession, which is ongoing um, of people's property, right? So how do we, who has power in this situation? Who has unrealized power? Um, who has the power to transform society? Um, which class can make society classless, right? Um, and this makes sense in the 19th century. It still makes sense now, but there are local particularities, right? So what do we do in, in the face of, in the global north, particularly in Britain, where the industrial working class has been more or less wiped out in Britain, right? Not globally, of course, that would be completely, completely untrue. But we can't just say, okay, we have to wait to the industrial working class elsewhere solves this for us. No, you have to struggle where you are. So how do you deal with this kind of historical legacy of, of, of who is revolutionary and who is excluded from that, right? Um, and I guess one thing that's, that's interesting is, um, you know, a worker is not only a worker when they're doing work, right? Um, and this is where part of the kind of wages for housework campaign um, and this kind of contention, this paradigm is helpful in a way because you have the sense of, Okay, so it's not just the wage that makes someone a worker, it's the dispossession that comes before that. It's the exploitation that is sometimes waged and sometimes unwaged. Um, and that's an interesting kind of move. So you go from the activity of work to the state of dispossession, to the state of, of, of being a member of the working class, rather than necessarily being someone who does a particular kind of work, right? Um, so that's one way you can do it. But of course, this isn't a particularly catchy thing to say to someone when you're at a canvassing store, right? <laughs> you can't be like, okay, so, there has been a prior dispossession, you know, this <laughs> primitive accumulation has really like done, you know, done you dirty, right? That's not particularly helpful. So it's, I think I think what can come in there are, are narratives around, um, you know, things that make sense to people's everyday life. Um, and, 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 and like people's ex kind of the way people are treated as renters, the way people are treated by like the local council, which hasn't, um, which has been defunded or the community center that's been shut down. And you can say, look, there, there are people who, um, uh taking away things that, that that you know that you have a claim to right um and if you think about people's experiences at work again while there has been that ideological lowering of expectations um in which unions have painted as greedy selfish partial you know the stuff about um you know the rmt like holding london to ransom or whatever um nonsense like this um despite that you can say if you if you work in a restaurant if you've worked in a bar you see how much money comes into that till. 
you see how much money you get paid. What's the difference there, right? So there are kind of stuff you can point to in people's everyday lives. And you can basically, you know, say, um, look at this material stuff, look look at the separation of, of you from the means of production, right? And, and that, that it's it's a question of kind of joining those things up. Um, what else have I got here? <laughs> um, yeah, so it's so a complicated identity. I think um, I think we have to look at uh, what is going on, and I think I think this is again again where the kind of the, the stories that Lewis and, and and Tom was telling about, you know, talking to workers and being like, what is going on in your workplace, and joining that up to the kind of theoretical positions that 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 we have that we know to be true that are kind of empirically visible about how society works, um, how power is shaped, how ownership is shaped, because while the kind of um, particular vision of the Fordist industrial worker uh, is no longer the reality of work in Britain, um, that relation underlying it is, you know, is still there. It's still there, right? You have this this dispossession. Um, so it's it's yeah, it's it's not clinging to kind of this this mythical version of Fordism that we can just go back to if we try hard enough. But thinking about what what are people struggling over. Um, and how can we, um, how can we take those struggles and, and join them up um, and, and build working class power in doing so? Um, oh yes, yes. About um, uh, this kind of whether people want to work anymore. One thing that's amazing about organising is how it transforms you, right? So I think I. I want to argue for the transformation of work, so the conditions of it being something very, very different. This doesn't mean people don't have to um, do anything. That doesn't mean there won't be any obligation, but this will be a very different way of coordinating that necessary activity. And um, it will feel very different to how we work now. So you can actually sometimes feel fleeting moments of this freedom when you're doing that kind of work. So in a campaign, when you're organizing, yeah, there's loads of stuff you have to do that you don't necessarily want to do. You don't want to go to a meeting at 7 p.m. on a Thursday. You don't want to go to a meeting for all of your Sunday. You don't necessarily want to go door to door talking to people, right? But you do it. It's it's still an obligation. It's a responsibility. It's not something you've necessarily, um, you know, it's not this kind of uh, sort of magical realm without obligation. But instead, the conditions of it are genuinely collective. Um, and you can see a fleeting glimpse of what freely working together might look like. Um, yeah, so I think I think there's something to that. Uh, some people's real jobs might even allow, I mean, it's hard. Some jobs can never be truly alienated, right? Like caring for someone else, for example, even when it's paid, um, there are still glimpses of that relationality, that human expression. So you can see glimpses of what this would be like, but without the kind of horrible power relations that, that, that are so exploitative, that make us so miserable, that, that kind of colonize our time. Um, yeah, sorry, kind of little rant there. But yeah, I, th I think there are these fleeting moments where we can see what things might be like. Um, and that could be the whole of production. Uh, yeah, I definitely won't have as uh, robust a response as Amelia there. But um, so I know that the like the term or the use of the word the term worker is like debated. But I mean, and I've, I've maybe been back and forward on this in, in, in previous years, but I, I find it useful in terms of, of like establishing a form of resistance um, and sort of reestablishing a, um, a, a working class identity and um, in opposition to those who are um, in charge of uh, different power relationships, whether that be in a workplace level or what, what have you. Um, I also think it sort of 
if we use it in like a precarious work context, it helps us to sort of reestablish the the new image and the new realities of the working class. So not as a like a minor versus like oh you went to university, so you, you don't you aren't classified as a worker. So I, I think using the term and using it more broadly is is uh, is helpful in terms of building that wider collective identity um, and reestablishing sort of like where we are at. Um, and in, in terms of like people who define themselves as workers, I, I think many people who would define themselves as workers who or who in, are ha happy to think that way don't necessarily want to be working or don't necessarily disagree with you on the future of work. Um, but again, it's just that sort of that relationship. And I think like, like it kind of chimes in with what Lo Lois was saying earlier in terms of like building a citywide campaign. So Unite Hospitality Glasgow do a very great job of like sort of bringing in these precarious, mostly hospitality workers that might be from a range of different workplaces, but establishing that there is a collective struggle in terms of whether it just be fighting precarious work or whether it be things that are happening in the city more broadly. Um, and they have a whole load of good things planned for for COP26 that include like a variety of actions in different workplaces and um, with different targets that aren't just specifically around workplace workplace struggles and I think like using that term of of worker and that collective identity helps bring more people into the fold um, and kind of let people see that they are part of that conversation if that makes sense um, but then I also know that like the, per the perception of what the working class is is very different in the UK than it was or than it is in America so um, I'm not necessarily saying that that would work elsewhere um, yeah, I don't really have much else to add I don't think All right. Um, yeah, there's, we could probably keep having this conversation forever. We did just put a last little call for questions. If anybody has any last minute questions to toss in the comment box real quick. Um, I'm going to filibuster for a couple of minutes, but thank you everyone for being here. Um, I don't know if anybody had any last comments they wanted to offer. Um, any last thoughts about organizing, about work, about why work is bad? Oh, surveillance, that I wanted to come back to. Haha, -ha, look at that. Um, okay, you got a reprieve if you were trying to think of your question. Because I think, um, as Amelia sort of said when she was starting up talking about why work is bad, it's the power relations um, and the domination. And so often, especially with work from home and with this sort of shift in COVID work, um, we're seeing new and fun and exciting tools of surveillance all the time. Um, and so I did just want to sort of touch back on that subject and the, the way that different workplaces are surveilled, but that this kind of observation that often moves beyond, again, just the workplace, um, surveillance on social media, surveillance at your desk at home, surveillance on your workplace computer, um, any number of things that your boss might use. Drug testing, I don't know if that's a big thing around here, but um, it's certainly on my mind lately. Um, all of these ways that control, again, expands beyond just the workplace, but is rooted in the work relation. I can come in qu quickly on that. Um... I think one thing that's really inter interesting and troubling about the pandemic is that there was a previously there was this bit of a stigma about surveilling workers, right? To some extent, it depended on on the particular work that was being done and and the social valuation of that work. But 
Um, it was not seen as a done thing in Britain to swear workers generally. Um, if we can contrast this. So, so one thing I talk about in the book is um, nannying. And there is still a bit of, there's still stigma around um, filming a nanny working in your home in the UK relative to the States, for example, where it's actually um, mainly completely legal to do that. It's not legal to just film employees without their permission, right? Um, employees without their permission. So there is this still lingering stigma, but, but in a way COVID has broken that down, had offered a legitimation narrative um, and encouraged employees to start using this technology. And the evidence is, is um, is emerging, but it's still kind of a little patchy. Um, but it's it's likely to see it, and as as we heard from Tom earlier, like this stuff is likely to be pioneered in places like call centers, which really are kind of like um, bear the brunt of, of these kind of techniques, um, and new technologies. Um, and you know, this this um, yeah, we we see that things that happen there tend to happen elsewhere. Um, so there is this kind of new frontier of surveillance um, and that that will also be in people's homes as well right so that, that those are all kinds of questions um yeah what else did i had i planned to say about that sorry um yeah i i think i think it's a it's a really important frontier um for us to be kind of cognizant of and thinking about um there is still a lingering stigma but um we're likely to see it being introduced particularly in in, in uh, bits of digital gig work like remote at home work and um, things like call centers where, where um, that very intense domination of workers is really common and is also is often algorithmic as well. Anyone, anyone? Tam, Lois? Um, yeah, I was just gonna say that like, so, I mean, as I talked about in the call center context, like, Surveillance has been a, a very motivating factor for people getting in touch with us. So people are clearly aggrieved about this invasion into the into the privacy of their of their houses. Now I don't want to say that we're taking advantage of that to to organise, but it's definitely something that helped us grow uh, actions within the call centre pretty quickly because it's pretty clear cut that people don't want to be surveilled at home. Now obviously the webcams at home is an extreme example, but um, it happens in many contexts and has happened in call centres for years. You know what I mean in terms of like timing of toilet breaks, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, it's definitely something that is is moving in and moving in fast, but I also think that the it, is, it does provide an organizing opportunity, whether that whether we can robustly challenge what is happening or not is another question. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it might be one of the main issues that come up and, and continue to expand in, in years and going forward. And then also like different types of surveillance in terms of like, so it was touched on there uh, in terms of gig work, but like, um, like most like Uber Eats or Deliveroo or whatever um, workers, they don't know how the algorithm works. They don't know what their basis is, the, the basis of being afforded uh, jobs or whatever. So it's like a surveillance that happens in a way that's sort of taken away from the workers, so that they don't even have any input or or engagement of how it works. So, yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily have answers, but I definitely think it's something that we should be organizing around and um, and are organizing around and will continue to be a motivating factor for people to get get involved. And as I say, I think it's why our original story around the webcams blew up so quickly, because people can very clear cut understand how that is an invasion into their lives, um, which people don't like over here, I don't think. 
Yeah, I would just only quickly add that I agree with Tam that I can see um, surveillance being an, a topic that people will want to organise around, it will, will be easy to organise people around, um, both in call centres and I can see it being in hospitality and as Tam was saying about delivery Uber Eats, that sort of situation. I can see that being the next, the next big one. All right, so we did get one last question. And since it's one of my favorite subjects to rant on, I'm going to ask it and then it's going to be our last question. So if any of you has anything else that just came to mind that you wanna throw in, um, you're also welcome to do that. So our last question is, um, do we think that job guarantees programs and similar ideas actually get a, in the way of identifying the root causes of societal problems by demanding meaningful work we don't get to the core? Anyone, anyone? I'll just say something quickly, um, which is, I think this question of meaningfulness is pretty vexed, right? Um, I'm not sure where I stand on the jobs guarantee. I think there are lots of different strategies. You need to think about how we use them, uh, think in different places at different times, whatever. But this question of meaningfulness to me is, is kind of difficult. Um, what do we mean by that? People find it subjectively fulfilling okay people could find all kinds of things subjectively fulfilling right the person who runs the cia's instagram could go home and be like this is fulfilling i'm fulfilled right so <laughs> that question to me is always like very odd right like because we need to think about like the level of objectively meaningful for society and how do we determine that how do we cash out people's actual interests versus like misleading interests and obviously that cia example is kind of frivolous but like basically people can be wrong right so this meaningfulness is difficult and it will not be possible for everyone to do uh meaningful work right whether under perfect conditions and especially not now we can't just make all work kind of magically meaningful right so i don't know i, I feel like this is one of the things that gets brought up in a lot of the good work agenda and obviously there are jobs which aren't meaningful meaningful for whom exactly the same kind of stuff came up with this question of around key work and around essential, essential for whom, essential for what, right? Um, these leave, leave out these big quick questions, uh, big kind of normative questions, uh, and 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 big questions about class and class interests as well. Uh, but yeah, that's my kind of meaningful rant. Lois, Tam, yeah. I'm going to be brutally honest because hopefully someone watching it will relate. I definitely just opened up a little tab and Googled <laughs> and Googled what is a job guarantees program because I hadn't, I hadn't heard of that phrase before. So Wikipedia has given me some answers. Um, so I don't have a huge amount to, to add on it. Um, but I do think it's an interesting, it's an interesting concept. Um, I know at work, especially in hospitality, one thing that people find frustrating, maybe this is a completely separate point, but a lot of people find frustrating this idea that you have to always look busy. Like you could have a completely empty bar or no checks going through the kitchen and you have to look busy and be busy because, you know, otherwise you're not being productive and you're going to get fired. And it's this, yeah, this constant feeling that you have to um, be doing something of worth and I think that that's problematic. Maybe that's a completely separate point, but it does come back to the kind of meaningful thing. Like, if I'm, if I'm being, you know, if I'm being paid by the hour, this this idea of feeling like I have to be doing work for every second of that hour, 
I think is a bit concerning. So maybe maybe that relates, maybe it doesn't, but that's what I've got for you. Um, yeah, so I mean, I suppose there's different contexts for what a job guarantee um, scheme could mean. I know that there's like there's one proposed in Scotland in, in the, the wake of the pandemic, but I mean, you, I mean, you could argue that it's plugging plugging the gaps of the failures of the of the state, whether that's through lack of services or what what have you. Um, but I mean, so a lot of the stipulations around job guarantee is that like yeah, so the jobs need to be living wage or the jobs need to be this that and the other, but often at least the proposals up here is that like part of that is subsidized by the state. So then you're just like further allowing some of these companies, whether it be Amazon or whatever, to paper over more of their cracks in terms of like their the relationship with their workers because the state is trying to force work or put workers in a place where they can work rather than addressing the issues. So I don't necessarily have a a concrete response. I'm not necessarily well versed in all the different versions of job guarantees and schemes either. But um, yeah, I'd be skeptical of them, even if they are guaranteeing like a living wage and guaranteed hours. Is if 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 part of this is subsidised, then again, it's just papering over the cracks. Maybe ties into some of my arguments about UBI, but that's a conversation for a different day. I think. Well. We are going to wrap up. I would just say that, yeah, I can talk about job guarantees forever, but I do think that they bring us back to some of these very beginning questions that we started asking at the beginning of Amelia's discussion about her book um, in that what is work, right? What counts as work for a job guarantee is a very complicated question because a lot of the important work that keeps society running is unwaged reproductive labor that goes on in the household and is mostly done by women. Um, there are questions about how much work is necessary, whether these would turn into sort of make work programs, how, as Amelia was saying, you can define what's meaningful. And all of these questions, and as Tam said, end up being subsidies for lousy companies to continue paying lousy wages. So the fun thing about asking big questions about work is that it, it leaves you with more questions than you've answered, um, which is where I'm going to leave all of you now. But I thank you all so much for coming to join us. If you want to buy Amelia's wonderful book. If you want the pretty, pretty hard copy like this one, you can get the discount. The code is at the bottom of your screen, TWT20. Um, and if you want the ebook for like literally, what, 80 pence, you can go to the website right now and order the ebook for like, I think if you are watching this live, you can still get it for this evening and tomorrow morning. If you're watching this archived on YouTube, which it will be archived on YouTube, um, you might be too late to get the sweet ebook deal. But nonetheless, you should buy the book. Thank you, Amelia. Thank you, Lois and Tam, for your wonderful stories of organizing. And thank you to everyone who came along.